So today we're sitting down with Priscilla Auguste, an epidemiologist and student representative to the American Family Physician Journal, as well as a candidate for Doctor of Medicine at Ross Medical School. Priscilla, if you could, for the listeners, would you be able to give us a framework in terms of some of your past experiences and your current work stream so we could come to understand your background a little bit better? For the past, I would say, two or three years, I've kind of been joined to the HIP with the Consortium of Universities for Global Health. I've been in the trainee advisory committee for the past, I would say, solid two years, working as first their chair-elect, and then this past year from 2020 to 2021, I was their chair. So this included running a lot of different projects and trying to organize a lot of webinars that were geared to kind of empower students. I mean, we recently started a new workshop series. So I started a workshop series just before I left that essentially put students all over the world in close conversational virtual contact, I should say, with global health experts from around the world. Some people that they normally would not be able to talk with or ask questions to, such as Dr. Patricia Garcia, who is the former Minister of Health in Peru. That I'm really excited. I'm hoping that that you know, project continues. They're supposed to be doing it every two months. The goal is to bring high-income and low-income countries together. And so in that vein, we looked at bringing in people from like Dr. Garcia from Peru, Dr. Barquera from Mexico, and the next they're going to travel to Africa and bring people from various regions there to speak to the students or global health. So showcasing experts from various areas. So it's not just going to be all U.S.-based, which I think is awesome. But we've also been doing research studies. One that I'm actually still working on is the student interest and barriers research study. And the goal of which is to find out what actually gets students interested in global health, as well as what they perceive as barriers to actually getting involved in the first place. And so when you say we, you're referring to the Consortium of Universities for Global Health, correct? As far as who is involved in the research project, you mean? Yeah, which organization are you a part of that's doing that research? This research is falling under the umbrella of the Consortium of Universities for Global Health. Yes, that's that's correct. The people who are actually doing a research study, it's a team of students, although some of us are about to graduate. And one of our PI is from Michigan State University, students with various backgrounds. Actually, some of us, we're students in some ways and students not in some ways, because some of us on the team have doctorates already, but are currently getting another master's or something along those lines. So those are some of the projects that I started at when I was at CUGH. And I'm actually still at CUGH, but now I'm just a nice regular member. And some things that I'm currently moving forward with now that my term with the training advisory committee is over is that I'm looking actually to make my own podcast, but mine is going to be focused on looking at underrepresented minorities in education. And I know I'm in medicine and that's a big deal of medicine, but I'm looking broadly at all academic fields as well as not just starting at the graduate school level, like looking back to even secondary, post-secondary schools to see where does the issue start that leads to there being an underrepresentation in the first place and how can we talk about solutions in order to get to that. Right. Nipping inequality and the, the drivers of marginalization right in the bud from the beginning rather than letting something fester. Exactly. So in that vein, you say that 
a lot of the past work at CUGH has been something that's really motivated you. And you're a fourth year medical student at Ross. So obviously that means the match has already occurred for you. How do you take these experiences and drive them forward once you land at your home institution and begin residency? Well, I feel like there's a couple of things that I've I've been doing, especially with my school. I want to continue to be a resource, I guess is the best way I can put it. I know that's one of the things that people have, students have issues with doing is networking. And so I'm trying to really push, because of the experiences that I've had with CUGH in particular, I have a really good, strong network. I kind of understand a little bit more about the global health framework. And so especially for students who are interested in that, I'm trying as hard as I can to push this idea of pursuing these global health career options. And not just at my school, honestly, I I'm happy to be a resource for anybody who, who's trying to get in. I don't care what country you're from. Absolutely. Being open and allowing for the diversity of the world to come into public health institutions across the country is something that obviously, well, what we talked about before, of identifying and then nipping in the bud those factors that drive marginalization. And to that end, that brings us to the reason why we're having this discussion today regarding a recent paper, an editorial in BMG Global Health titled Global Health Degrees. When you went through this paper, can you highlight some of the key points that came out to you in terms of your past experiences at CUGH, what you want to drive in residency, and going forward in your pursuits about how you mentioned how you want to start your own podcast? How did this paper inform those aspects of your future plans? It's called Global Health Degrees at What Cost? that was published by BMJ Global Health. I think one of the amazing questions that they posed was essentially there's a lot of global health programs out there that are developing, especially among high-income countries. And this question is, are these programs aimed at lower middle-income countries, which is essentially where a lot of the issues are? Do you think global health kind of comes about because of the lower middle-income countries and the issues, the fact that there's health equity issues coming across the world, if that makes sense. And so they asked the question of, in lower middle companies, where they have these training gaps, which are huge, is it, is it them who's being targeted or are high income countries essentially creating these programs to benefit high income trainees and institutions? And when you look through the information that they shared, you can see that one of the things that they've discussed is there may be a, a disconnect between where the global health training is needed and most versus where the programs are actually being offered. And there's also this discussion about, okay, you have these students and trainees who are in lower middle income countries, and they need to be able to give back or to help support or help change what's going on in their community. I'm a strong believer in sustainability. And I think sustainability really largely depends on strengthening the people within the system. It's better than coming from outside and trying to come in. I think it's better to strengthen the people who are actually in that community so that they can then come back and support their own community. In the paper, to your point exactly, in table one, characteristics of masters of global or international health programs by WHO region, you can find that on page three and page four, you only see one institution listed for the entire continent of Africa. And then you see two institutions listed for the entire region of Southeast Asia, where more public health related emergencies percolate. 
it's unfortunate because I think the people who could stand to benefit from the most, I mean, I think we could all agree are the people from the low middle income countries. And so to that note, the paper also talked about the fact that how do we come alongside these students and trainees to make sure that they can get the training that they need, especially when these tuition costs, they're ridiculous. I mean, they're really high. I've seen some 54,000 US, I've seen in here in this table, 89,000. It's just really high. And you can imagine they're from a lower middle country already. By that nature, you can imagine that their financial means are are not enough for them to be able to attend. And so what happens is that it's the privileged who will be able to actually get these experiences. You have a system that's designed by the privilege that is then poured in to the privilege. Absolutely. It's a self-marginalizing loop in terms of the people who are allowed in and the people who have to stand outside and watch. Exactly. They really highlight a really interesting issue and that I definitely think it needs to be addressed. I know that they've talked about how some programs do things like fee waivers in order to help out with situations like this, but I feel like there's something needs to be done. It makes you think that something needs to be done more globally across the board. We need to really rethink how educational programs, global health programs need to rethink how that they are addressing the tuition needs for people who come from the areas that these programs essentially are intended to help in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And one of the concluding points, not to jump ahead, but to your point that you're making, why should somebody from West Africa have to go to Boston or the United Kingdom to learn about sleeping sickness or malaria when that is their lived experience, right? That's their ancestors lived experience. Exactly. It's a conundrum, a very interesting one at that the framework just really needs to be redefined and rehashed so that we can figure out a better way to address this issue. In terms of that framework, you know, the paper made sure to draw a distinction about what global health is, but in terms of the issues that global health is intended to address, it just seems like public health. So could you unpack the difference there in terms of what is actually global health and what is actually public health. I question that terminology, global health. If you look at various organizations, it's been redefined. People talk about global health, international health, and public health. And here's an example I can give you. Let's use West Africa that you just brought up and the issue of sleeping sickness. So you have a a healthcare worker who is working in that area, doing a lot of work to address sleeping sickness in West Africa. And they maybe they're doing a research study, whatever the case may be. To them, their perspective, this is local health, like you said, public health for them. So then let's take it to, you get a researcher from the US. I'll just use that as, as an example of a high income country. And that researcher decides to come to West Africa and work on sleeping sickness and do research and essentially be doing the same thing as the other, the trainee or the the researcher who was already there. It's their local town. They're already doing this type of stuff. Now you have this other person who's coming from an international location and is now doing what the person who was local was doing. So the question is, who's doing public health? Who's doing global health? Is there really a difference? Just to editorialize here, I kind of reject that difference because public health emergency 
in our current crisis, right? What started as an epidemic in China is now a global problem, right? So trying to draw that that dividing line between public health and global health just does not seem like an inclusive way of figuring out or providing solutions to the task or the job to be done. Maybe a better term could be global public health. To every person who's in the situation, for them who lives in that community, for them, this is just public health. This is local health. Traveling to another country does not suddenly make it global health. When I think of global health, I don't think it's necessarily about what you're doing, where you're doing it, whether or not you're doing it in your where you live or you're doing it abroad. When things become global is when, when we're talking to each other. It's not about the work. It's about the community. It's about the connection between various groups internationally talking to each other to try to address the same issues. If you ask me, and I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm a leading expert, but if you ask me, I would say, yeah, that's what makes it global. It stays public and local when you just try to address it within, within your own neighborhood, within your own background. But if you talk to other countries, like with what's going on with COVID right now, is that we've had no choice. We have to communicate because this is a global situation and everyone's dealing with it. To me, what makes it global is that we have to communicate globally in order to address this one issue. To that end, in order to drive the equality piece of the equation, there needs to be curriculum that is developed that supports the local population and drives education at that level which means that a global health curricula has to be implemented in low or middle income countries. But to that end, those regions of the world are prone to political instability. As we can see with the Arab Spring in Northern Africa, as well as sectarian terrorist violence in Western Central Africa, as well as the recent coup in Burma. So how does political stability figure into that development of that global health curricula? I strongly believe that how good your education is in a country is very connected to how your government operates. And I'll use an example of both a high-income country and a low-income country. And I'll start with a low-income country. In fact, I'll, I'll talk about Haiti since that is my parents' heritage. One of the things that I've noticed in low-middle-income countries like Haiti is that you have the situation where there really isn't much of a middle ground financially like a middle class. It's bimodal where you have either a very rich class, which is a small in number, and then you have a poorer class who doesn't have access to resources. And so what ends up happening is that the higher groups get to benefit from things like education, but a lot of times it's usually an outsourced education where they are sent to some other country, or sometimes if they have something established inside. It's a very small majority of people can't get into it because cost of money. So I think the problem is, is that because there's that governmental control and that bimodal distribution of finances, they can limit the education of those lower classes by controlling the finances. And that's where that corruption comes in. When you have that and you have that financial control and the lower classes are never able to get educated then what happens is that it's harder for them to fight back, to fight out of this system that they're in because they're not educated about the system and about the ways to stand up. It's so important that we find ways to help develop something. 
I mean, even if a high income country was to come in, which is still going to be a, a struggle because anytime you come in, if, if anyone is familiar with how these uh, lower middle income countries usually work, they still have to work with the government. And you can imagine if the government's corrupt, they're not going to, any funds that are poured in can, can potentially be kept from the lower classes being able to have access to it. Exactly. The issue of the intended use for funds that were allocated versus the public officials on the ground skimming off the top or just outright embezzlement. Exactly. Whereas in higher income countries, usually the ability to get access to education, there's usually things like, for example, I'll use the US since I know that structure the most. You have things like scholarships and you have various forms of financial aid like grants, you have loans, you have all of these things that are in the system. So even if you have educational institutions that cost money, which isn't always the case, there are some like New York School of Medicine just recently changed their tuition, I believe, so that you no longer have to pay, correct me if I'm wrong. There are systems set in place to try to help students to be able to educate themselves. It's not perfect because we still do see that minorities are still having issues with being able to navigate that system. But again, it's that whole issue of there's a system of control where even from early on, they're not being educated to know how to even address the system that is suppressing them. I'm with you on that one. It's a situation of being aware of the opportunity, but being in a situation where you can even become aware of the opportunity. Exactly. You see similar thing in the minorities in high income countries that you kind of see in lower middle income countries, but in lower middle income countries, it's more profound. But to that end, given how the rest of the world, we can start with an example that's as historic as the internet, right? Something that's enabling this conversation. It was a small DOD project in the 70s that spanned the internet and Going as recent as now, the COVID vaccination programs, the majority of those are Western or high-income country-backed efforts. There's obviously a leadership position that's being maintained here. So why is maintaining that leadership position in this subject area so negative? It gets back to that concept of, if you think about it, you've heard of the phrase, you feed a man a fish and you give him a fish, you feed him for a day but teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. And I think while it's great, I think it's awesome. I don't think necessarily that high income countries should not try to help those who need the help. This goes back to what I said before about believing in sustainability and believing that we should create a system that allows countries to become stronger. If a high income country is consistently always contributing, but not partnering, And that's where I think that there's a difference. I don't think that they shouldn't come in, but you should partner. And I think by partnering with these lower middle income countries, it creates this system where maybe they can learn. And eventually the high income countries don't have to be present anymore. They can slowly draw back as those lower middle income countries become stronger. But I think it shouldn't be go in and take control is is another way to put it. Encouraging that collaboration between partners as equals rather than maintaining a type of hierarchy. Just like the analogy I gave, it could create a system where the lower income country will never get out of even being classified as a lower middle income country if they're always bailed out. But again, like I said, I definitely agree that 
you know, you should always step in and help someone who needs help. I mean, it's just something I live by on an individual basis. I don't run a country, but if I see someone who needs help, I'm going to try to help them. But at the same time, I want to give them the tools to learn how to sustain on their own so that they can be stronger. It's kind of like the long-term consequences of labeling. You fall into this trap of saying this country X, country Y is lower and middle income. And then all of a sudden it's been a half century, right? And they're still lower and middle income. So you kind of see the long-term consequence of just believing how that interpretation is going to be that way. Why can those efforts in terms of building out, as the paper is suggesting, in those areas, how can they be any different, especially after we've labeled these countries lower middle income? They have consequential problems as a consequence of that label with corruption. They have political instability where governments can rise and fall at a whim. And then the population as a consequence of the discussion that we were having earlier about controlling which segment of the population can get what access to education. You get dichotomies where segments have limitations with literacy. When the paper is trying to lay out a new framework of building curricula in the affected regions, what new efforts will be different here in your view? It's a a tricky question about how things could potentially be different. So when the people who are oppressed are trying to overcome that oppression, there are several things that you have to consider. For one, these people, potentially, many of them don't know what it looks like for things to be a different way. They just know that things should be a different way and that what's going on with them is not right. And so the question becomes how to empower them and to help them find ways to better structure a new system, a better system. It's hard. We're talking about essentially building a new system from the ground up. It's not easy. In order for us to have a better global health education, or or going back to that question of global health curricula and and global health education, and transforming from a, you have to transfer from a system where there was corruption and instability and and limitations to a system where there is not, that alone is going to take several years. Because partly it's a logistical thing, but partly you have to see it's a mindset. If you've been oppressed all your life, some people may think that that's just the way things are. Obviously, if there's an uprising, there's people who understand that that shouldn't be the way things are. But within that group, the people that they're trying to represent, there are people who don't understand why things can actually be better or how things can actually be better. And so it's a re-education of both better ways to do things as well as a re-education of the mind, renewing the mind to see that you're worth a lot more than has been presented to you by the, the system. It's a hard question how the new efforts could potentially be different. I think that's the best way that I can answer that. To that end, in terms of encouraging stability in lower and middle income countries and building out the global health curricula using your experiences, what would you say are the best things that can be used to inform that framework that's going to be used to develop the global health curricula in lower and middle income countries? As far as a framework to encourage stability, first of all, it's just like whenever you have any problem or any, I don't know if you've heard of the system that they use to address quality assessment issues and even hospitals. First, you have to sit down and look at 
the system. That's the first step that people will need to do in order to address the, the situation. Let's sit down and let's look at what are the problems. And that requires a community, understanding that everyone has a voice. Because if you think about it, in these corrupted governments and these unstable governments, there is this concept that there isn't a voice for everyone. And so that's the, the first step is to giving everyone a voice so that we can actually address the concerns of the people. And so I think that's definitely the first step. Once you give people a voice, things will come out that are issues that you may not have even understood that were issues. After you come to this, it's a democratic perspective where everyone can speak, then start trying to see what type of resources do we have? And can we partner with other groups to help us with the resources that we don't have? And so looking what you have available to you, and as well as looking at what you don't have available to you is another really great step in order to address the situation. And then once you understand what the actual issue is, you understand what you have at hand, the tools you have at hand to actually address it, then the next step is to actually start testing things out, seeing what works and what doesn't work. But keep it in mind that like I said before, these things do take time. You're not necessarily going to get it right the first time, especially if you've been in an oppressive situation. There is going to be this desire to see change happen quickly. Anytime you're going through anything horrible, you're going to want things to change overnight, but you have to understand that things don't always change overnight, especially when it comes to such a massive movement like overturning the current institution and replacing it with something new. And to that end, on a Final parting question. Could you map out the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and the threats that we're facing in terms of the, what the paper is laying out and their recommendations? What the paper is talking about, it's, it's a really great opportunity for us to reflect on the way things are and to look into how we can change. A lot of times, ignorance will play a big role. You don't realize, you, you think you're trying to help. For example, I'm coming from a high-income country. I think I'm trying to help by training people in high-income areas to go and do global health and lower middle-income areas. And you're like, oh, this is great. This is a great program. Sometimes we can reflect by actually talking to the communities that we may be trying to work with. Like, for example, if you have a global health program that focuses on sleeping sickness, since we, since we were talking about that today, and it's working on sleeping sickness in West Africa, they never partner with the actual community and try to talk about that north-south relationship, which typically is a lot of times it's not bi-directional, which is another thing that the north-south relationships came up in the paper as well. We can reflect on whether or not our program is actually doing what it's actually set to do, which was the main issue that was brought up by the papers. We're talking about building these programs in order to address issues in lower middle income countries. But think about the crux of the matter is, is that lower middle income countries, again, I strongly believe in sustainability. And with sustainability, you need to improve the infrastructure of the community itself. And that requires that the people in the community itself become educated enough to actually help themselves to move forward. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to reject the help of the higher income countries. I think that just means that partnerships should be had. I think reflecting about your program and just really having open and honest thoughts. When you really think about the outcome that your program is trying to do, are you actually doing that? Or are you essentially creating this continuous cycle 
as the paper mentioned, that the programs serve the privilege and it's just a continuous cycle of the privilege being able to learn so that they can help the unprivileged when it really should be trying to create a system where the lower middle income countries can help improve their own infrastructure. So those are some of the opportunities and some of the strengths that you've mapped out in terms of the last couple pieces there. In terms of developing the curricula, implementing that curricula in institutions, and then building up the local workforce, and then going forward on that path of partnership, what would be the weaknesses and the threats? The threats, obviously, I think we've talked about the issue with corrupted governments. And we've talked about this problem with potentially have a corrupted government in a country. There's an issue of bimodal distribution as far as wealth is concerned, where you either are among the high class or you're among the low class. There typically isn't really a middle class. So you're either rich or you're poor. The tricky thing about partnering with or trying to train or work with those type of countries is you have to ask yourself, are your efforts supporting only one side of that bimodal distribution? You may be trying to support the low class, but are your efforts really only supporting the high income class and therefore perpetuating the low income status of the country as a whole? I think is an issue that you really have to consider when you're going into these partnerships and try to account for. I'm not sure if I can consider what could be a weakness of these programs other than the possibility that you are perpetuating that cycle, as I mentioned before. I think I would agree with you in terms of the papers already laid out, the financial barriers and the cost of entry is too high. So that would be one of the main weaknesses. Overall, I'd like to really thank you for sitting down and discussing this paper with me. I really appreciate the insight that you've brought here. And overall, I want to wish you the best of luck in terms of your upcoming residency and enjoying your graduation. Thank you so much. I'm definitely looking forward to it. It's definitely a, a new journey. For me, it's a jump off start for my career. So I'm I'm looking forward to this change. Absolutely.